Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, July the 27th, 2020. This is episode 2697 of the Survival Podcast. And today we're going to have a Just Check show where I take a subject and I break it down. And boy, this one has a lot to do with modern survival. Because nothing is more critical to your modern survival, especially in the age of, let's say, a pandemic, than your health and your nutrition. And uh, I'm coming at this from an angle that won't really surprise anybody that's been around for a while. And I'm going to tell you when I give you the title, if you haven't read it in your, you know, podcast player or uh, on the website yet already, you're going to you're going to immediately jump to um, a, a second conclusion, right? Um, hold on, because I'm going to cover it. Today's episode is called Almost Everything the Government Says About Health and Nutrition is a Lie. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is that conclusion you would jump at. Well, that's redundant. You could have just said almost everything the government says is a lie. I agree, but today we're going to key in on this particular thing. We're going to talk about a slight modification uh, addition to my uh, my COVID prevention protocol, which is really, I, I believe, personally uh, good for any and all uh, RNA-replicating viruses, which COVID is. Uh, I'm going to talk to you uh, more about vitamin D, specifically D3 supplementation. I'm going to recommend an article uh, from Dr. Mercola that I highly suggest you read. I'm going to say it's a must-read. I'm going to recommend once again and talk a little bit more about a book that I've started reading. I'm about 60% done with it now. The Optimal Dose, Restore Your Health with the Power of Vitamin D3 by Judson Somerville. And I'm going to talk about the government's advice on diet as a whole, the results of that, and the juxtaposition against something like the keto diet that I have followed for about a year. I'll talk a little bit about my results, which are known to many of you. Um, But I find that every time I talk about the results I've had, there's plenty of people that don't know. I find that there's plenty of people that, you know, they don't really spend a lot of time on social media. They're not really on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. They don't watch a lot of YouTubes or something like that. And every time I put up, you know, photographs of what I look like today, people that have seen me before are like, holy crap, How did, what did you do? And it's like, I guess you don't listen to all the episodes or something, but um, it's been keto eating. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. It's not going to be really like, hey, this is exactly how to do keto, because that's not really hard to figure out. I'm just going to talk a little bit about what it, what it shows us that it works, what, what it teaches us about being willing to simply accept what the government says about anything to do with diet, nutrition, health, medicine. And I, I, I really want to make sure that the full title is taken in this. I, I didn't just say that the government, okay, that the government says about health and nutrition is wrong. I, I'm really including the medical establishment. I didn't put that all in the title because then the title would be stupid long and it really would like not show well in your podcast player and it wouldn't show well on internet search engines and stuff. But when I say the government here, because of the complete intermixing of the medical industry 
and things like the, the, the medical labor unions. like The American Medical Association we think of as this independent, third-party, godlike you know, entity that can do no wrong, that is there solely to help us understand medicine, us poor lay people. And what it really is is a labor union for the medical industry. You can look it up if you don't believe me. But you can trust me, because when I don't know, I say, I don't know. Right When I think I know, I say, I think I know. And when I'm pretty sure that I know and I, I really feel like I do know, I say, I know this. Right, and I, and I always couch that with, I reserve the right to be wrong. Always. Unlike your government, which you can't trust. Any entity that ever says that they can't be wrong cannot be trusted. If you want to quote me, there's a quote of the day for me. But let's jump into a different quote of the day. Um, I am a reader of Dan Brown's books. Um, I don't get any kind of super, um, you know, groupy effect with Dan Brown. I don't think like his books foretell exactly what's going to happen in the future. Though his, his last one was pretty interesting, and it had a lot to do with automation, which I think he's kind of bang on to a large degree about. But I just I want to be clear that like Dan Brown is not some guy that I like follow deeply, but I do like his work, so I follow him on social media. And occasionally he'll put out a quote of the day with a post on Facebook. Today he put out a quote by uh, Otis Huxley, which I really like, so I decided to make it my quote of the day. And this is what he said, and I think it really fits our episode today very well. He said, experience is not what happens to a man. It's what a man does with what happens to him. If you think about it, if experience was just what happened to people, then two people my age right now, 48 years of age, should know pretty much the same stuff. We should be able to make decisions that are equally valid. Much of what has happened to me has happened to anybody else's 48 years of age. Now, of course there's individual differences. Like, I joined the Army if another 48-year-old didn't. I have that experience behind me and they don't. But when you talk about the, the macro of things that you've seen in the world, like the government lying, We've both seen that happen an equal number of times. Maybe some of us pay attention a little more than others, but in the end, we've all seen it. We've all seen the government lie. We've seen the government get it wrong, 100% wrong, more times than not. Yet some people take that experience, they process it, and they say, I know, I should stop trusting the government. Not even if I, it doesn't even have anything to do with them, like maybe wanting to mislead me. They, but they either clearly wish to mislead me or they have a great deal of incompetence. And either way, even if I form a base of opinion off what they've stated today, I, it is incumbent upon me that I verify that with things totally disconnected from government, like, like, like a journalist is supposed to, that I find completely independent sources that confirm it, and I also find independent sources that challenge it. And then I resolve that conflict through logic and reason. That's what one person would come to. And many other people who have had the same experience choose to just continue to accept that it's probably true because the government said so. And that, that hits dead on with experiences, not what happens to a man, but what a man does with what happens to him. And that's, of course, much broader than just do you or do you not trust government. There are so many people who have been through horrible events in their lives, and they've channeled those to accomplish amazing things. And there's other people that have been through less horrible things who have allowed themselves to be destroyed by them. It only matters what you do with what life hands you. Your experience is, is really only as valuable as your response to what occurs. 
Wise words. Uh, next up, let's go ahead and talk about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Um, I have always relied on herbs to be my go-to uh, for you know the common chronic things that we deal with in life. I'm actually finding I need them a lot less because of some of the stuff that we're talking about today. But uh, you know, I still rely, let's say, on comfrey. On, a, on almost a daily basis for little scrapes and dings and sprains and stuff like that. I rely on a lot of herbs. And the, the company that I go to first when it comes to anything herbal is Western Botanicals. They've sponsored this show for like nine years. Uh, that's a long time in the world of podcasting. And they have real people that really care about you. And you can just trust them. And that's something to be said in the world of herbals. Uh, next up today is the Free State Project. And they are on a new campaign Instead of saying, hey, come join the Free State Project and be part of what we're doing, they're like, hey, come visit New Hampshire. Just come visit. Come see what the place is all about. And, and then while you're here, instead of just having your typical vacation where you kind of land somewhere and you're like, gee, I hope I have fun. I hope I find cool things to do and maybe I'll meet some people while we're here. There's people there already that are welcoming, that will help you find places to go on vacation and tell you about job opportunities and let you know about the organization that they have in place in the Free State Project, all just by taking a vacation to a wonderful, wonderful state, New Hampshire. And if you're one of these people really worried about COVID, they have a very, very low incidence of COVID in New Hampshire. It's not a bad place to go. So check them out today at the Free State Project at freefsp.org forward slash visit New Hampshire. All right, with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into this today. I, I want to tell you that I know a lot of you listen to the podcast, and you do so on you know a Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or on Pandora or on you know uh, Overcast or whatever, and you you don't tend to go look at the show notes. You don't tend to visit the website that often. I get a lot more podcast downloads than I get website visits. And that makes sense. I mean, I listen to people's podcasts all the time that I, I couldn't even tell you what their website is, honestly, to be fair. So that's fine. But I really recommend that you check out today's episode. There's going to be a bunch of links in it that are going to be advantageous to you. But the other thing is I want you to look at a picture, and I kind of want to start off here. There's a picture of myself and Dorothy on the beach in Sanibel Island, Florida, in July of 2019. And it's sitting next to a picture of us on the same exact beach, just a little bit away from where the first picture was taken, in July of 2020, one year apart. And you see two totally different people in the two pictures. It's not just that we've lost weight. If you look at our faces, we look younger. You know, my wife's almost 60. She's going to be mad at me for saying that, right? But it's truth. You look at her picture, one year apart, And you are amazed at how much younger she looks, how much more, not just weight loss. My wife lost about 35 pounds, and for her, that was a lot of weight. But the, the difference in the, the appearance of age is amazing, as is mine. You know, I look like a fat 55-year-old in the first picture. I think I'm being kind to myself. And I look like a fairly lean 40-something, like early 40s in the second one. I look 10 years younger at least. And that's from feedback of other people. And that's not braggery. But I have always said that if you're going to make a case for something, you better be able to show results. And everything I'm going to talk to you about today, I'm going to tell you that if it's not my results, there's results somewhere you can go look at. And if we look back at the government, again, with our quote today from Huxley, right? 
It's experience is not what happens to you, but what you do with what happens to you. So are you going to let the continued failure of government to be right be something you continue to base your life on? Or are you going to look at the history of government making these decrees and being wrong through malice and competence or both and say, you know, I'm not going to say something's not true just because government says it is. Because government's often said the exact opposite of what it said yesterday. It had like If you do the exact opposite, then you had to be somewhat right in one of those. Now, maybe the truth lies somewhere else, because there always is the false dichotomy. But when there's a concrete issue, and they say you should do this behavior, and then they come back and say, well, you should avoid this behavior, or moderate this behavior, uh, or this food, or whatever, right? Like, like One of those times they had to be right. So it's not necessarily that they're always wrong. You know, government is the entity that has put in motion the concept that we teach children in schools look both ways before you cross the street. That's not wrong. So it's not like every single thing government says is wrong. And we certainly should not do the opposite only because government said so. You could look at another example of what government said we should be doing, wearing seatbelts. And I think that most rational, logical people realize that seatbelts save lives. Does that mean government should be able to fine you for not doing it? Not necessarily. I don't really think so. But I'm still going to wear my seatbelt. So, you know, government got that one right. Government also told us about the same time they started the seatbelt push, if we raised the speed limit on the highways above 55 miles an hour, there would just be, you know, uncountable numbers of dead people everywhere. And raising the speed limits has had very little effect on, on loss of life on our interstate highway system. So they got that one completely wrong. It never made sense that they would have been right about that, as most people were driving significantly over the speed limit already anyway. And a lot of cops were not writing tickets until you got significantly over. But then when they started talking about raising the speed limit you know, to 75, 85 miles an hour in some cases, it was just, oh, my God. And, of course, the insurance companies jumped on because everything that our government does is driven by the, the, the cooperation and collaboration with private industry. By the way, we call that fascism, just so you know. And, uh, my God, it was going to be the end of all life as we knew it. And then the places they actually raised the speed limit that high were so small trafficked or so straight line or whatever, so low risk that nothing really happened. Again, government being wrong. Government's been wrong more than it's been right. And it's advice to society about what it should do, and it's warnings about what would happen if certain restrictions were lifted. It's been wrong over and over and over again. So I just think that maybe we should stop listening to it. What I want to lead off with, and I'm going to go through this very quickly, and I have links to everything in today's show notes, um, is my protocol for COVID prevention. And it's not really my protocol. This is what I do in my life based on the research of other people and the validation of medical professionals and scientists that I have said, hey, I think this is a good idea. What do you think? And not having a single professional that is either a doctor or a research scientist in this regard who has taken a good deep look at my research come back with anything other than that makes sense. That should work. So... That's where I'm coming from here today. I do want to say this is what I do. It is not a recommendation or a health claim. You should never exceed recommended safe doses, and you should check with your doctor for any contraindications of any supplement or any other medicine that you take. You should really listen to 
my segment on the podcast today before doing any of this, so that really doesn't matter to you, you listening. I have that written down in my notes, so anybody finds this, don't don't just take the text. Like You really need to put in the context here. Uh, some of the stuff I consider is a nice-to-add thing. Some I think is pretty vital when it comes to helping to prevent COVID, uh, or at least if you get COVID, to have a much more mild case of it. I've also made some pretty big modifications based on an article that I just found by Dr. McCullough, and I'll tell you more about that when I get through this. So some of this is going to be not a lot of news to you, if you've heard it before. So again, I'm going to go pretty fast. I'm going to start off with my number one recommendation here, and that's Quisertin. And uh, if you are not sure how to spell it, again, it's all in the show notes today for today's episode, but it's Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N. Um, personally, I take 500 milligrams twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. And I use it because it is a proven ionophore for zinc, meaning it helps the zinc get through your cell walls in your cells. You put zinc in the cell walls, you reduce viral replication. This is known old science. Okay, uh, Zinc, um, two doses a day, that must be taken, in my opinion, for maximum effect at the same time the quercetin is taken. Zinc is great, but you can take a lot of zinc and very little of it gets into the cells without an ionophore. Quercetin is that ionophore. Uh, green tea extract, you can still take it if you want to. I've dropped it. I don't take it anymore. I've done enough research now. I think quercetin is, is sufficient. And there is some quercetin in green tea extract, and that might be one of the reasons that it works. I've, I've read evidence of other things that cause it to be helpful. But I've determined with the fact that I drink some coffee every day, the extra caffeine that's there, I really don't want it in my life if I don't need it. So I'm not using the green tea extract. But I wouldn't tell you there's anything wrong with doing it if you tolerate it well. Just be very careful with green tea extract. It is something you can overdose on. So follow the recommendations. Check with your healthcare provider, etc. cetera. Uh, vitamin D3. Uh, I am now taking vitamin D3 morning, afternoon, and evening, three quite large doses. I'm not going to give specific dosing recommendations on this because I am exceeding the recommended dosage of, like, everybody. I am not trusting government. I'm trusting medical research. I'll give you a book to read. If you read that book, once you read it and you read the work of Dr. Mercola, you can try to justify, you know, kind of rectify some of the conflict there I'll talk about in a minute. But it will be up to you to make that decision. I'm not going to recommend that somebody take more of something than officially stated you should take. But I'm telling you I exceed that recommendation significantly. And I'll tell you why I think it's safe when I get to this article and this book. Vitamin C, I'm taking three times a day, 1,000 milligrams each. I like to use a buffered C because it helps with not having problems from the acid, the absorbic acid. Um, and I take 1,000 milligrams three times a day. That is definitely safe. You could definitely take more. But that's what I take. A good multivitamin, I do that because when you take anything, you possibly can create a shortage of other things. And, for instance, I, I learned that this was a good policy in here because if you're supplementing zinc, you can have a copper deficiency. So I have always been taking care of that by always taking a good multi that has exactly the amount of copper in it you should be taking if you're taking the zinc. I didn't know that, though. So I think a good multivitamin, multimineral is always a good additional assurance pro, uh, policy. Let me say, if you're taking a multivitamin, multimineral, and there's a maximum dose that you want to be taking of any other thing, make sure if it's in the multi and you're taking it additionally that you are making sure you count all of it. Does that make sense? So a good multi, a good B-complex vitamin, I, I find to be absolutely essential to health in general. And... 
what I've added to this, and again, this is another thing I was already taking because it's good for cardiovascular health. My, my doctor has me on this, is magnesium. And the article I'm about to tell you with, from Dr. Mercola makes a very good case for magnesium when you're taking vitamin D3. Because it is difficult for the body to use the D3 that you're taking orally without magnesium. And if you're not taking extra magnesium, uh, you can also not only not have enough D3 get into your body and in your blood and in your system and be usable, you can also create a magnesium deficiency. So I take a significant amount of magnesium. Everything I just mentioned, the quercetin, the zinc, the green tea, the D3, the C, the multi, the B-complex, and the magnesium, some of those I get from Dr. Stephen Lewis with Green Wisdom Health. I highly recommend you work with him and have a full blood panel done so you know why you're doing what you're doing. And, and again, I'm going to talk more about the D in a minute on that. Um, but that has been, in my opinion, my concerns about overdosing on D, unless you get really stupid, have been largely destroyed by this new book um, by Dr. Somerville. Um, but I really recommend you consider doing that or at least have your doctor order labs and not just look at your cholesterol and triglycerides and shit. Look at your vitamin D levels. Look at your, 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 all of your levels and, and then look to try to optimize those levels, not just have them not be deficient. Okay. So what I want to talk about now and, and where this edition of magnesium came from is this article that's on Dr. Mercola's website. It's called How to Fix the COVID-19 Crisis in 30 Days. And, and the upshot is that if people would take quercetin and zinc, which I've recommended, and D, which I've recommended, we would largely move COVID not to the, the, the position of no problem at all, but we could largely mitigate it to the point where it's not a global pandemic in a month. Now, I'm skeptical about this, and, and, and I'll tell you why. And, and I'm also optimistic about it, and I'll explain how I can be both. Everything that I've learned about vitamin D in the past two weeks, and it's a lot of new knowledge that I've, I've acquired about vitamin D, is that even if you take massive doses of vitamin D, if you've been deficient for a long time, you will see no true noticeable difference in your serum levels of vitamin D in your blood. So my issue with what Dr. Mercola is saying, and it's all data-driven, it's all science-based. I sent this to Doc Bones and Nurse Amy. I said, you guys will love this. I know that you're open to supplements and stuff like that, but you're not exactly fans of Mercola. Uh, you also think that a lot of because Doc does. He thinks a lot of the supplemental stuff is just it's overblown with its, what it can do and all. But I'm like, this is all data-driven. Go read this, look at this, and track down the data and the studies behind it. Um, but but I, I, I do wonder how you're going to get enough D into blood serum levels using supplemental D based on the problems and how long it takes to correct in many instances. So as I've been reading the book, again, uh, by Judson Somerville, MD, called The Optimal Dose, um, what I've got gathered from him is even with taking very large doses of vitamin D, it, it's taken up to a year for some of his patients to up their vitamin D blood levels to what he considers optimum. And there's there's some things going on here that I, I, I have to figure out how to resolve this conflict because there's not enough research to do that. From what Mercola is saying, one of the reasons people end up having to take such large doses of D is they're not supplementing magnesium and they're not getting enough magnesium from their diet. So it take, just like it would take a massive amount of zinc without an ionophore, Merc Mercola is essentially saying a similar thing with magnesium. 
if you're not taking the magnesium with the zinc, so uh, or magnesium with the vitamin D. So I think that blood serum levels are going to be key, and I'm going to have my blood work done again uh, very soon and see where I'm at with the vitamin D levels. And then if I make any changes, we'll see what happens, let's say, another 90 to 120 days, having the blood work done again. And, again, I can't recommend Dr. Lewis highly enough for how simple this is. I don't go to a medical office or anything like that. I go to a lab. They stick me with a needle. They take some vials of blood, and I leave, and they send me a report, and they send it to him. Like, that's that's how easy it is. I'm in and out in less than 10 minutes. And, and that makes it a lot easier to do this. It's also very affordable uh, compared to a lot of medical procedures and what have you. Um But I, I kind of have to, I don't know yet. Like, so can we, if I start taking very large doses of D while I'm taking magnesium, what's that going to do differently than if I was taking a more standard dose, let's say 5,000 IUs of vitamin D a day with the magnesium, would that be enough? So what I'm going to do is baseline it because I've been taking uh, a significant amount of vitamin D every day for about a year along with supplemental magnesium. So I want to go see what, what my vitamin D levels are. And I will tell you this. Being outside all the time, in August of last year, my vitamin D levels were not sufficient. They weren't not just optimal, they were low. In Texas, in the summer, now, I was drinking a lot, that hurts. I wasn't taking care of myself, that hurts. But you would think that a person with light-colored skin, in the sun, all the time in Texas, would have high vitamin D, or at least sufficient vitamin D. I was suffering from vitamin D deficiency. So I'm going to baseline it, and I'll report back to you. That's all I can do now. I would say that that makes me wonder a little bit about potentially creating too much D, but I want to kind of explain how that works too, what I've learned about this. So first of all, it's kind of important to understand that when you hear something like 5,000 international units of D3, you would think that if you looked at a supplement of, let's say, vitamin A, and it said 5,000 international units of vitamin A, that the, the D3 and the A would be the same amount, right? They're international units. That's not how it works. The international units measurement of vitamins is specific to the vitamin. And so 5,000 IUs of vitamin A has absolutely no correlation to 5,000 units of vitamin D3. And so 5,000 IUs of D3 is an incredibly small amount of D3, actually. Does it mean that you can't overdose on something with a very small amount? In Dr. Somerville's book, he points out that a very small amount of cyanide will kill you. But it is kind of important to understand that just because it sounds like a big number doesn't mean it's not 5,000 milligrams, right? Uh, or 5,000 grams, for God's sakes, right? It's, it's, it's 5,000 IUs, uh, which I believe, if I remember right, and again, I'm going from memory here from a book I've been speed reading, but I believe that's 750 micrograms is what 5,000 IUs comes out to. That's that's a pretty small amount. It's either that or milligrams. It's one or the other. It's a very small number. And micrograms seems to be what it actually is. That doesn't mean go overboard. But I, I do recommend that you do have your serum levels of D3 tested. And the most startling thing in the government and in medical industry being wrong through good intentions that I've developed out of all this is when you get your D levels... If you came back with your D at 110 uh, units in your blood, and I don't remember if it's in animals or whatever, um, they would say you have toxic D levels. They're too high. Uh, Dr. Somerville now says your kind of optimal D levels about 100 to 120. 
So 100 is your threshold for it's become toxic. Where did that number come from, that 100 units for your blood serum level come from? Well, it came from the 1920s when they did research on vitamin D. And they found that vitamin D would prevent rickets in children. All these kids were living in the city, suddenly coming into the industrial age and all, and being inside all day long. And as young children, we didn't have DNR milk and DNR uh, orange juice and everything like that, like we do now. And so that's why we have it. So they figured this out. And they figured out um, that, or they, they thought vitamin D was actually a vitamin, which it's not. It's a hormone. And since it was a vitamin, they knew that, it, that any vitamin that you had to get from outside your body, which is what they thought, they didn't understand how it worked yet, um, that you need a very small amount of most vitamins. And some vitamins can be very toxic at high levels if you get too much of them. So they figured out, like, where do we think the toxic level is? And they figured out that a blood serum level of about 300 was bad, really bad, which it may not actually be, but it could be. Bad, really bad. And then they decided that, well, you know, we need a safety margin. So they just arbitrarily chose to cut it by a third and make it 100 because they knew that, you know, as little as 20 or 30 was high enough to keep kids from getting rickets, and that's all they thought that it did. They didn't know anything else that it did. No one's done anything to change that since the 1920s and 30s. Now, they rushed it because they were in the middle of a depression heading into a Second World War. So they had to kind of like, we have to get, get this off our table. So you can give them some allowance for that. But don't you think maybe we should look at this again now that we know D3 is actually a hormone that your body produces in the sunlight? Uh, so when you start looking at it that way, you start to realize that even what we're recommending for a daily allowance, even what we're recommending for blood levels is probably low. And, and so I, I really recommend you read both the Mercola article and I really recommend you get the, dose, the book again. It's called The Optimal Dose by uh, Judson Somerville, M.D., if you have Kindle Unlimited, the book is free. You can read it on Kindle Unlimited for free. And I, I want to shift here for a minute away from, from D3 now, and I'm going to come back to D3 again at the end. But what I want to talk about is diet. Because when I tell you don't trust the government's advice when it comes to COVID right now, it's very easy to understand why a lot of you would say, he's a science denier or whatever, if you believe that government gets things right. But as I said at the beginning of today's episode, if you look at the pictures of my wife and myself at the beginning of, you know, at this exact period in time last year versus this year, the results in how we eat are undeniable in what they have done to improve our lives. And that's based on labs, but you don't need labs to look at a person and go, that person's not healthy. Not only is that guy fat, he's not healthy. You know, healthy at any size. Well, first of all, bullshit. But you can look at people that even aren't fat, for instance. You look at their face. You look at their eyes. The same way you can look at soil and go, that soil's depleted and that soil's probably mineral rich. That we can just see that. You can look at a plant and go, that plant's not healthy and that plant is. We have the ability to do that, to recognize that. That's actually uh, an evolutionary trait in humans that we recognize illness, sickness, and disease when we see it. So that we know that like something's wrong over here. And if we look at the government's dietary advice, it is it is 100% based on carbohydrates. It is a carbohydrate-based diet. And carbohydrates are sugars. Any chemist will tell you this. In any attempt to rationalize it, well, they're complex, or they're sugars. And you give me a pound of bread, a pound of potato, or a pound of sugar, and I will make you the same amount of ethyl alcohol out of it, and I only can get the ethyl alcohol from the sugar. 
And so you, 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 you really can't make an argument that you're not, if you make the dietary recommendation to base a diet on carbohydrate, you're basing a diet on sugar. It's also high in fruits, which is high in sugar as a whole, but it's specifically high in fructose. Fructose is the fruit sugar. So half of the sugar in fruit is fructose, half of it's glucose. Fructose is a, hep a hepatic toxin. Hepatic toxin means it's a liver toxin. Fructose is a liver toxin. I'm going to say this one more time. Sugar, fruit sugar, fructose, is a toxin to the human liver. This is not my opinion. This is a scientifically provable fact that fructose is a liver toxin. Your liver processes fructose almost exactly the same way it processes alcohol, which makes sense, honestly. There is, in the, in the full process, which is a very long, convoluted process that I would bore you to tears with if this were a video and I were showing you diagrams, so it would really bore you in, in, in audio alone. You will have to trust me here unless you want to look it up for yourself. There is a video I did watch on this. I'm the weird guy that will watch a video like that. Uh, if I can find it for you, I'll put it in the show notes. But just trust me. When you look at, if we take a, a, an ounce of fructose or we take an ounce of ethyl alcohol and what goes on in the liver to get rid of that substance and make some piece of it usable to the body and keep it from being toxic to the body, there is only one very tiny variance in the way the liver processes those two substances. Additionally, the liver is the only organ you have that can process either of them and deal with them. On top of this, there's a thing against alcohol. If you are sitting with, with, with sugar and alcohol in your body, your liver cannot process both of them at the same time because they require the same systems. So the sugar just stays there until you get rid of the alcohol. So if you really want to destroy your liver... If you want to do, just get on with it and do it really quick. Drink lots of screwdrivers, lots of fructose and lots of ethyl alcohol. Same time, that is like a fast track to destroying your liver. Pretty popular thing. But we wouldn't give children high amounts of alcohol. Even if we could give them alcohol daily, up to a certain quantity, that didn't really impair their ability to function. Like if we could keep just the edge of what their body can process. We wouldn't do that. We would say that's a sick, twisted thing to do. You're damaging a child's body at a very young age. When you give a child big, giant glasses of apple juice every day, which the government thinks is a fine idea, you are doing damage to their liver and their, their system that is similar, not the same, as similar to the damage that would be done by providing them ethyl alcohol every day. But all of a sudden we think that's good. That's the government's advice. Um... The government's advice on diet is used by millions of people under doctor supervision and then in that process fails to lower blood sugar or result in significant weight loss. There are literally millions of Americans who I know are eating bags of Cheetos and whatever, that's fine. But there's millions of overweight Americans with health problems that go to their doctor, their doctor prescribes this diet based on grains and carbohydrates and low fat that do follow it and they don't lose significant weight, and their blood sugar problems do not correct to any meaningful level. It happens every day, and then they get very frustrated. Maybe they go back to the Cheetos because they figure it doesn't matter, and maybe it doesn't, as long as they're going to stay that way. But that's the advice the government gives. 
It is very difficult for a person to even follow the government's advice, avoiding the processed foods, high sugar items, etc., once they become addicted to those foods. It, it's very difficult. Basically, what you're asking a person to do that's a drug addict is limit their drug, their drug use to a slightly less bad drug while the, the real drug that they love is, is widely available. Or you're asking a heroin addict to use only a little bit of heroin. While every time they walk into the place to get their little bit of heroin, there's a great big giant pile of heroin sitting right next to it that they can freely have. In fact, the big dose of heroin costs less than the little dose. So even if a person wants to follow this guidance, which is probably not going to work, it's almost... It is, I'm going to say it's almost impossible. That's, nothing's impossible, right? Nothing like that has a decision on your end is impossible. But it's difficult because you're asking, because it is an addictive behavior. And while the government says you should go easy on the processed food, the high sugar, all of that, there's at the same time, there is nothing in the food industry that is subsidized more than sugar. Well, Jack, they subsidize corn, and it's sugar. And they subsidize corn mainly for the production of sugar. The most subsidized food that we have. Therefore, making it extremely cheap and extremely attractive for the industry to use is sugar in the form of mostly corn, but also beets and other things. Our agricultural subsidies are designed to make lots of calories from carbohydrate crops i.e. sugar. So they are making sure that they stuff the food channel with sugar. If you add to it that the food industry knows if we include sugar and we include trans fats and other you know, cheap vegetable fats and we put them together, we enhance how much people eat and we make more money, then they're going to do it. That's, that, is the, that is what they have done. That's their advice and that's their actions. What the results are, about 300,000 people a year in this country die specifically from complications directly related to obesity. 80,000 a year die from diabetes, the majority of which today are type 2 diabetics. No one has to be, okay, I always have to catch myself when I say this. I have been proven wrong in this. 99.9% .9 of people who are type 2 diabetics do not need to be type 2 diabetics and with dietary change can no longer be a type 2 diabetic. There are a very small number of people that seem to have something that predisposes them to a what we call type 2 diabetes, even if they have a really great diet. I have yet to see one prove it to me, though, on a ketogenic diet. So I have seen it proven with the person is healthy otherwise, they eat a balanced diet, they're not fat, and they are a type 2 diabetic. I have yet to see anybody make that claim, try keto living for 60 days, and then say, I'm still type 2 diabetic. I, and I wonder if any of them are type 1, failed, late onset type 1, failed to diagnose. One of my best friends, if you guys see me on Facebook with him, you think I hate the guy and I beat him all the time. We kind of do it just to razz y'all. We, we're both in on it. Is John Dowie. And, and John Dowie fought for over a year and a half as he lost weight and became more shape and more fit with what he believed and his doctor believed were type, was type 2 diabetes. And it got to a point where there is no reason to have diabetes. 
And so maybe the predisposition would be for people to think, oh, it's, it's, you're one of those people with, that just has type 2 even when you're healthy. But eventually he and his doctor were able to work out that he was actually a, an adult-onset type 1 diabetic. So I wonder, those that, that little 0.1% of y'all that have been able to get me on that gotcha, I wonder what, what, of, what of that group is actually not type 2 at all but adult onset type 1. I also, this is a total speculation on my part, and I will, I will say that so you know that. I also speculate that it may be possible that some adult onset type 1 diabetics are actually people that so damaged themselves through type 2 diabetes they effectively became type 1. But I, I can't prove that, and I have no research to point to. But I just, my gut is there. Um, additionally, the results, 650,000 people in this country die every year of cardiovascular disease. Cancer deaths have increased by 60% since like 1900, right? No, since 1990. Cancer deaths have increased by 60% since 1990. More than 34 million Americans have diabetes, which is about 1 in 10. 1 in 10 people in the United States have diabetes. About 4 million are type 1. That's the person that drew the bad straw from the genetic roulette. Type 1, you can't blame the person for or their behavior for at all. Now, I have known type 1 diabetics who have literally destroyed their lives by refusing to take care of themselves. That's, that's a different thing. But you can't blame a person for having type 1 diabetes any more than you can blame a person for being born without a hand. It is something that genetically happens, and it just is. And it sucks, and you got to deal with it. And fortunately, we have a lot of ways we can deal with it way better than we could have 100 years ago when it was kind of a death sentence. But that means 30 million Americans today, which is still close to 1 in 10 because there's, what, 330 million Americans. 30 million Americans today are type 2 diabetics. 30 million Americans are type 2. And what's even worse is that it's estimated that we may have as many as a third of all Americans. A third of all Americans. That's 90 million people on current trends will have type 2 diabetes by 2050. I mean, it's the, it's the single largest lethal epidemic in the world when you look at it that way. Type 2 diabetes is the leading cause of org, is a leading cause, not the leading. It's a leading cause of organ failures. Not just you know deaths from diabetes directly. It's always indirect deaths. But, for instance, end-stage kidney failure, where the only hope you have is a transplant to live. 44% of kidney failure, end-stage kidney failure, is because of type 2 diabetes. 44%. And, it, and a, a significant portion is from type 1. And in many cases, type 1 diabetics who do not adequately care for themselves. And if you go to a doctor with type 1 diabetes and say you want to eat ketogenically, the doctor will have a freaking coronary in front of you and die about how terrible an idea it is. But the people I know with type 1 diabetes that are most effectively managing their diabetes are ketogenic in their, their diet primarily. Um, it's a $300 billion cost, just type 2 diabetes. I'm leaving all the other obesity-relating things out. And if it continues the way that it is, by 2050, it will cost us about $1.5 trillion a year just to treat diabetes in this country. Right now, the government takes in around a trillion dollars in personal income tax revenue annually. 
So treating this one illness will cost about one and a half times all the personal income tax paid in the country. And a lot of this right now, you know, you think, well, that's a really big expense on insurance companies. A lot of this is being funded through public money. This is a rampant problem in low-income people, many of which are on Medicaid, supplemental insurances, etc. We all pay this $300 billion annual bill. Not to mention that those people are consuming massive amounts of resources. So this is where I get really irritated with people talking about, if you don't wear a mask, you don't care about other people's health. COVID, no matter what you think, will be gone in a year. Vaccine, no vaccine, doesn't matter because these things burn themselves out. That's what they do. That's what they've always done throughout history. You'd have to have a complete, total divorce from historical norms for anything else to happen. But there will be more, not less, people dying of obesity and type 2 diabetes next year. And the year after. And the year after. And the year after. And the more we follow the advice that the government's giving us, the more that will be true. I want to kind of talk about keto a little bit here. And again, it's not so much what to do because that's we've done that before. I just want to talk about contrasting the way that we're told we should eat with the way people that are doing ketogenic eating are eating. First of all, keto diet is not some fad. If you look at keto from a standpoint of what you eat, it is actually based on thousands of years of natural hunter-gatherer living. We as a species ate mostly ketogenic for the vast majority of our lives. We went out and we clubbed and we trapped and we scavenged. And when we scavenged, the the very first hominids as we scavenged would follow around like lions and what have you. And the lions would, you know, kill a buffalo. And they would eat almost everything outside of the skeleton. There wasn't a lot of scraps left for us to to to, to scavenge. We might even figure out how to chase the cats away or whatever eventually, but you knew that you had to let the animals take most of it before they would run away from you. And then at that point, they're like, eh, let these hairless monkey things that, that throw sticks at us and yell and know what fire is, let's, let's let them have what's left. We'll just go kill another one. So with that being the case, we would, and they found these tools where they would break the bones open and eat the marrow, which is mostly fat. And that's part of what we evolved on. And in every indigenous society that we know of, do you know what we don't have? There is no indigenous society anywhere in the world that is vegan or vegetarian. It does not exist. There are religious sects. There are no indigenous cultures that are vegan or vegetarian. Very few have carbohydrate-based diets. And the reality is almost none of them did until colonization forced them to. So if you look at Native Americans, for instance, they live mostly on animals. You know, everyone's talking about the Indians' gardens and stuff. That was after we reservationized them. The, the, the Native Americans in this country primarily lived on venison, buffalo, and elk, and fish, fatty fish like salmon. And around the world, most hunter-gatherers either live on game meat or seafood. And fat is prized above all things. And I'll leave it at that. As we go forward from that, though, people that go on keto diets, almost almost everybody who does it right for real and isn't lying and cheating has a dramatic weight loss experience if, if they're overweight. So we know that it works. It lowers the A1C reading, which is what your blood sugar average reading is over time. So you take your blood sugar, sugar at any snap of time. It can be really high or really low. 
A1C is what's really important. It's how we diagnose things like diabetes. Just because your blood sugar is high right now doesn't mean you're diabetic. Just because it's low doesn't mean you're not. But a high A1C is a very bad thing, up to and including being a death sentence for people. And if you look, if you look at it, almost anyone that does this, their A1C is certainly lowered more than by taking some drug you see advertised on the TV. It's a truly sustainable diet. And I mean that in more ways than one. I think that, first of all, it's sustainable as in it's easy for you to keep doing. It's Especially if you purge your house of all the things you're not supposed to eat. What, what kills people with keto is they go keto, but they keep feeding their kids Pop-Tarts. Well, because the kids have to have Pop-Tarts. No, they don't. No, they don't. Well, the kids have to have candy. The kids have to have potato chips. No, they don't. No, they, and they shouldn't. You're setting your kids up to become you. Some of, I've even seen some of y'all that do a really good job on keto. You get your life together, you get skinny, and your kids are fat. Why? Why? Why are you feeding your kids this garbage? Because the government said to? Because your kids will cry if they don't get it? They'll get over it? Well, they can have it when they're kids. They can have some of it when they're kids, more than you, that's sure. And you know what? If you take it away from them, they'll still have some. But why are you providing it to them? Stop doing that shit. So it's sustain. when I say it's sustainable, I mean that once you adapt to it, it's not hard to stick to. A calorically restricted diet based on grains will be hard to stick to because your body will constantly be in a survival mode because it will believe that it is in a scarcity due to the absence of fat which is supposed to be in your diet. I'm not going to say any more than that. But it's also sustainable environmentally because it relies on mostly ruminants and fish. Do you know how much corn we have to grow to feed a cow? None. That's how much. That doesn't mean it's how we grow cows mostly now. But we don't need to grow any corn at all, infinity, to raise a cow from a calf to a high-quality, nutrient-dense food that is high in the best quality fat there is for humans to consume. All we need to raise cows is grass. Grass grows in fields that you don't have to do anything to. The number one way to get grass to grow healthy and robust is to graze it with cattle, allowing them to consume about a third of it per rotation and letting them shit on it for fertilizer. If you do those two things, in most areas that it's okay to, that makes sense to grow cattle that way, you don't even have to irrigate. If you do have to irrigate in some real dry areas, you have to irrigate a lot less than you do to grow corn or wheat or whatever. And if you were growing those things there, you'd be irrigating anyway. So it is. It's a, meat is a far more sustainable food environmentally than any grain can ever be. And there's no need to grow grain to grow cattle, nor to grow goats, nor to grow just about any ruminant. By its very nature, ruminants want to and are designed to and evolutionarily are, evolutionarily are designed to eat grass, not grain. That doesn't mean they won't eat grain, but in practice they actually would eat very little grain. If if you look at what wild grain is like, especially the grass grains, grass seeds, go try to eat a handful of it. Don't because you'll choke to death on it. And, and cattle don't tend to really like anything that's that mature anyway. They like young, fresh growth. That's what they are looking for. They, they want to eat before it goes to seed, before it becomes a straw. So goats, we do not need to grow grain for. Cattle, we do not need to grow grain for. Pigs, we do not need to grow grain for. A little bit of grain actually is helpful in the raising of pigs, but we don't need to grow that much of it as a supplement. We can, we can provide all of that boost to our pigs 
through acorns, which grow naturally in civil pasture systems, which is where you grow the cows and everything else. About the only protein that really you don't need, but it makes a lot of sense to grow grain to provide is poultry, and, and specifically chickens. Right? You can grow you can grow geese from gosling out of the the egg to beautiful, um, most healthy meat, rich in fat. Rich in nutrient that you can possibly think of. One of the best meats on the planet in 11 weeks, 100% on grass. And you know all those Canadian geese that attack people walking along rivers and office parks? Who, what grain are they eating? And the answer is they're not. Yeah, they might clean up and glean out like a, a rice field or something during migration, but most of what the animal eats is grass and other forage. So it is incredibly sustainable, and the the systems that are best designed to produce protein are the most environmentally sustainable agricultural systems we have. They're civopasture systems. There are lots of trees with glades of grass and field in between, and we graze that, and we use the trees to produce additional mast for the animals. So it's sustainable from a standpoint of being able to do it, and it's sustainable from an environmental standpoint. If we did that, it doesn't have to be expensive. It's already less expensive than the real cost of the standard American diet. Because, you know, like we're not factoring in with our, you know, what does it cost for a person to eat, you know, ramen noodles, uh, crunchy uh, things, Pop-Tarts and McDonald's on a daily basis. You could do that out of pocket pretty cheap. What's the cost of the subsidy that fuels that? What's the real cost of 100 calories that comes from corn? You know, it might cost you two cents to buy it, but what's the real cost of it just with the subsidy on the back end? Now, what's the cost of it when we add the cost of medical care? What's the cost of it when we add in 600,000 people a year, many directly because of it dying of cardiovascular disease, 300,000 a year dying directly due to causes of obesity, almost 100,000 a year dying of type 2 diabetes complications. Uh, how many people have organ transplants and organ failures due to type 2? Like, what's it cost then? So it already costs more to do what we're doing than it, than it would cost to do it another way, if you look at the total cost. But if we actually started doing this in earnest, if we actually started shifting the food production systems in our country to these systems, the cost of meat would drop dramatically. And yet ranchers could still make a living doing it. Because their input costs would go to almost nothing. You know, while, while everybody's trying to figure out how to grow more chestnuts because we want to replace corn for humans to eat, we have a hundred species of wonderful different oaks that are good to feed pigs with. And by the way, if we use the right oaks with the right tannin levels and a little bit of processing, make outstanding chicken feed. And now we don't even need feed for the chickens. Now, cattle... In general, cattle probably shouldn't eat acorns. I won't get into that today, but I've seen cows near kill themselves with acorns. I'm sure there's ways to change that, but how much do you, work do you need to do? And when the cow is happy to eat the grass, right? Um, next, I think that one of the things that we talk about with keto that people don't really take in is being so valid in showing how, how important keto is to do. And why we should all probably be living that way. I didn't say all should be. I said all probably should be. Right? I'm, I'm, making, I'm making an allowance there. You really, I don't want to do it. Okay, don't do whatever you want. But why I think it's an incredibly valid way to live is keto flu. 
People talk about keto flu like it's a bad thing. Well, that's like talking about having detox symptoms for somebody who is an alcoholic or a heroin addict a bad thing. Now, while you're going through it, it can be bad and it might need some management. But would you use the fact that, hey, Bill is a heroin addict and he's going to have some really bad withdrawals from heroin. So he should probably keep taking his heroin. I mean, nobody would say anything like that. And don't you think that, like, the withdrawal symptoms show you that heroin's bad? Like, something that's good for you, you should have withdrawal symptoms from. You might have a deficiency, but, you know, withdrawal symptoms are not a deficiency. They're withdrawal symptoms. And one of the things we see with keto flu and, and various rashes and things that show up when you go keto is the release of toxins from your body. And your body has to deal with that toxin so that you can get through it. But they don't stay. People that get a rash from keto, you know, three months later don't still have a rash. In fact, many of the rashes they had before keto are also gone. Some of the things that have happened to me have been, you know, I used to have really bad cracked heels. I don't anymore. Probably because I was borderline type 2 diabetes and I had poor circulation to my feet. It just wasn't that bad yet. That went away. So I have pretty bad toenail fungus. It's pretty much gone away. By going to keto. So like all these things get better, but the fact that something gets worse first probably tells you that what you were eating was really bad. And you're either dealing with withdrawals or you're dealing with release of toxins that you can finally get rid of. But while those things are coming out, it's bad. And I mean, my other thing with this, there's millions of unsolicited success stories in keto. Like if you look at all the weight loss pro products and programs, they have to pay people and you go to, their, you know, to YouTube with like Weight Watchers. And you see all these testimonies, they're all paid. They're all from Weight Watchers. There's not huge groups of people independently singing the praises of Weight Watchers. But there's hundreds of sub-communities of people going, ketogenics of some, some form or another, this is, this is what happened to me. And followers don't just lose weight. They look fit even without heavy exercise. Men start to look muscular on keto. People look at my pic. Go look at my picture today. Again, it's not. It's just. It is what it is. And people look at it. And go, Jesus, are you hitting weights? And we're just starting to really bring heavier exercise into our life right now. The answer has been no. So why do I not just look thinner? Why all of a sudden my biceps and my chest muscles start to look like somebody that's going to the gym every day? Why do I start to look better in some ways at 48, 49 than I did at 28, 29? Why? And it's because of hormonal the balance of hormones. And that's what people don't realize about keto. It's not just straight up weight loss. I really think there's a lot of people out there who are weight-wise in good shape or maybe weight-wise underweight that could benefit tremendously from eating a ketogenic diet. And I really think if you have health problems at all, I, I recommend you at least give it a shot. If, if it doesn't work, this is what I would say with keto. If you'll do it for 60 days, nothing you're concerned about, you will have a long-term problem with. And then you'll know. And, and by all means, get your blood work done before and after. And do not let your doctor scare you if your base cholesterol numbers go up. Look at the small particle 
stuff. That's the only thing to really worry about. There's never been a study that's actually proven that higher blood serum cholesterol levels result in more cardiovascular disease. Cholesterol is a necessary thing in the human body, and there's probably a lot of people in this country today because of the nonsense about it that are deficient in it. It is necessary to repair structures in the human body. Without it, you have a problem. But it's really based on hormonal balance, and that brings me back to vitamin D. So vitamin D, again, we, if we don't come at it from an understanding that it's a hormone, then we can't understand what it really does and why it's so important and how bad the advice we've been given about it or the lack of research into it really is. So if we know it's a hormone, nothing in the body when it comes to hormones works completely independent of the rest of the body's hormones. So if you elevate a hormone, there's usually a corresponding response from another hormone within the body. In fact, without getting really technical, I'm going to tell you that I, I personally feel, based on all the research that I've done, if you have any hormone out of whack in your body, it's very difficult for any of the other hormones to totally compensate, that it will throw your entire hormonal balance to some degree out of whack. So if we don't come at this from the standpoint of that this is a hormone, then we can't really make an assessment over how big of an impact it can have in our lives. If we keep looking at it as a vitamin because we call it that, then it is easy to say, well, we only need a little bit of it. There's hardly any vitamins that we actually need a lot of. All right? We need a lot of vitamin D, and we don't get it. Um, so much so that the, the recommended daily allowance of vitamin D from our government will not change blood levels in people. If you take a person and they have a base level of, of vitamin D and you give them the exact amount that the government says you should take every day and they're deficient or sufficient, whatever they're at, and you test them 90 days, six months, a year later, it will, you know, unless something else did it, a behavior, a dietary change, unless something else did it, that action alone will not move the blood level of vitamin D at all. In fact, and again, this might be mitigated with the consumption of uh, sufficient magnesium. Like this is an, I'm learning as I go here. So Dr. McCullough says that's critical, the, the magnesium is. But even what are considered high doses, i.e. something like 5,000 international units a day, when tested by doctors who have given it to their patients and then done follow-up on the vitamin D levels in the blood, did not move the needle at all or by so little it was of no effect. I'm not giving you a recommendation here. I'm just going to tell you that the book that I'm reading specifies the optimal dose at 30,000 international units a day, and the doctor does a good job of defending the fact that you are not going to reach toxic levels doing that. I can't, I can't say that you won't because I don't know other ways you might be getting D. But if you're, if, you're blood, if you're testing blood not just for serum vitamin D levels but for hypercalcemia, because that's the risk, producing too much calcium in the blood and causing calcification of your arteries, etc., then you would see the calcium in the blood rise before you might even notice the, the D is becoming toxic. But again, that number for toxic vitamin D is really somewhere in the neighborhood of 300, and by some research I've read 400 versus the 100 the government says, and 100 is probably great. 100 to 120 is probably great. I'm not a doctor. I can't say that emphatically as being true. But that's from what I'm reading, from the data I'm getting, from what doctors are reporting, 
that their healthiest patients are people in that range. So much so that this particular doctor with this book, that again, the optimal dose, I totally recommend reading this, says that all of his patients actively, actively doing this have not had a case of influenza in seven years. Now, you're talking thousands of patients. That he's actively treated patients with influenza in those years because not all his patients are on it. Some of his patients are new, what have you. He's never gotten influenza, treating patients with influenza while on that large dose of vitamin D. I'm not saying you can't get influenza if you're taking a large dose of vitamin D and your blood serum levels are there. I'm saying that it sure appears that it makes it unlikely. And it sure appears from the data that we have right now that it reduces COVID and COVID impact. Like, we don't, and when I posted this article, I had one of my TARD followers, I have TARD followers, I don't know why they follow me, I, I do know why, they follow to snipe, say clearly this is biased because he's been saying D's good for years. Well, he, the, the article is not driven by opinion, it's driven by data. He said, we need large double blinds to either prove or disprove this nonsense, or it doesn't matter. Well, first of all, the article says we need large double blinds. So you're restating what the article said in opposition to the article. But on top of it, well, why haven't there been any? Why have we done all of our research on vitamin D with minuscule amounts of vitamin D? Why have we never looked into this? So the fact that it's not there doesn't prove anything or disprove anything. It just shows that you can't say that we know when we haven't tested. What we do know, though, is a cursory look at the data all around the world, the more vitamin D deficient people in an area, the more severe and more mortal cases of COVID. And the higher the number of people with good vitamin D levels, the lower the incidence of death and the lower the incidence of severe cases. You can make some level of argument. Are they, do they have high vitamin D levels because they're healthy or are they healthy because they have vitamin D levels that are high? And, and we need to research that. But the summation of this article was, well, If we have people take vitamin D, magnesium, Q-certain, and zinc, we lose nothing, and it might help. That's a pretty compelling argument. It seems like a compelling argument enough that Twitter shouldn't have banned the article. Yes, Twitter banned this article as being dangerous. Dangerous. At least Facebook hasn't yet. I share this article with people, right? Um, next, on vitamin D, most people don't make enough or even can't make enough from the sun alone. People who have discovered this and decided, well, I'm going to go to the sun. I'm going to get in the sun. And they go out and they spend an hour or two a day, naked as the day they were born in the sun, I guess in their backyard that's sheltered or whatever, and they check their vitamin D levels and they do not go up, even in the summertime. We have, to a large degree, I think in some instances, lost that ability, and there's, I have a variety of theories why. One is that we have done such a good job of keeping people alive in the world, many people who would not have survived did, And they may not have been likely to have survived in history because they had insufficient vitamin D levels. And as we've discovered many times, as I've reviewed this over, over the years with you about myths, people in the past did not in genuine die young. They died in childbirth or they died as old men or they died of accidents and war and epidemic pandemic. Right? One or the other. So it was common for people to maybe die in their 30s from smallpox before we had a smallpox vaccine. Yeah, sure. But it wasn't common for them to just get sick and die. That in general, what made the average life expectancy look low 200, 300, 400 years ago was how many people didn't make it out of childhood. 
that went down as zeros or ones or twos or fives or eights. And those, you know, anybody knows how averages work, that will drag your number down. But if you, if you correct for that, say, what is the average age of a person from 250 years ago that lived to be 18? If you take war out of the equation, right? And, and other, like, uh, acute events. If you just take, like, if they, if they weren't shot in the face, or they didn't end up in the middle of a city in the middle of a cholera epidemic, right? How long did they live? And they lived about the same amount of time they live today. That's, that's, that's factual. So the fact that we have gotten better at keeping people alive that would have otherwise died means we had a whole lot of people reproduced that would not have reproduced, including people that are probably deficient in their ability to make vitamin D. Additionally, I wonder, I don't know, I wonder, can one over time become deficient in their ability to make it? So you're born with the ability to make all you want, and you live a life largely clothed and indoors and in winter scarcity mode, which is what Dr. Somerville calls it. Like, if you are a light-skinned person that's supposed to be living somewhere in the northern or southern hemisphere, your body is designed to make as much vitamin D as it can all summer long, store the extra in your fat, and then use it in the winter during scarcity in a survival mode. That's what your body's designed to do. Which makes a lot of sense as to how bad it is to be low in it then, because then your body is being signaled the entire time you're in survival mode. See how simple that is? Right? But if you then take that person in the time of year when they're supposed to be getting the most vitamin D and for 20, 30, 40 years keep them indoors, when they go back outside, has that ability been impaired? It probably has. How long will it take before that ability restores itself? I don't know. But it sure seems like supplementing it makes a lot of sense. Almost all trials on vitamin D have used amounts that can't change the blood levels. That's important to understand. Whenever you hear, well, it had a moderate effect for those who were that, blah, 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 blah. Well, if you're, it, it's a purposefully flawed study. Now, it's either purposefully flawed intentionally or through incompetence. But you can't take somebody, give them 800 IUs of vitamin D a day, and then say, well, vitamin D doesn't alter uh, disease rates for influenza. Because if you also test people that you give that amount of vitamin D every day, you will see 99% of them have no change in their blood serum levels. So what have you done? You've done nothing. You might as well have gave them a, a, a placebo. So whether it means we need to be making sure we're using more than that and using magnesium or a lot more than that, I don't know. But doing both seems pretty safe, especially if you're testing your levels. Um, Again, the safe blood level is an arbitrary number that's at least three times lower than the real safe number. They just picked a number. The optimal blood level is probably about 20% higher than what the government claims is safe. Like a person with a 120 on their vitamin D levels is probably at like an optimum level. But they would be told, you need to reduce your consumption of vitamin D or get less sun or whatever. And it works more than just directly for immunity. It's a hormone. It, it, it regulates the gut biome. The fauna in the flora in your, your, your gut is largely regulated by vitamin D and supported by it. Again, it signals winter survival mode and summertime of plenty. So think about why people that, that, that get their, their vitamin D right lose weight without making any changes. They do make changes. They just don't consciously make changes. They eat less. They just eat less. Why? Because you're not in winter survival mode. Think about what your body's designed to do during winter survival mode. If you find food, eat it. You don't know when you're going to find more. And what is your body designed to do in summer? Relax, chill, it's all good. Be a grasshopper. Right? 
be an ant in the winter and a grasshopper in the summer. That's what humans are kind of disposed to do. That doesn't mean we don't put up food in the larder or whatever. But in general, like as a species, if we lived in northern climates where winter was a time of scarcity, we were programmed to eat more in the winter, to eat anything we could find in the winter, to get through the winter. And additionally, that's a period of stress for the body. The body's under stress in the winter. Now, it's not now. It's not now because we just go to Kroger's. But if you go back a thousand years, winter was a stressful time. And if you go back 10,000 years, winter was a stressful time. You go back 100,000 years, see, you see how it is? The entire evolution of humanity up until very recently, winter was a stressful time of shortage. So the body needed to be on alert for three or four months out of the year. It had to be on alert. If you saw something, you had to kill it, and you had to eat it, and you had to get everything you could from it now. So then you take that, that, that programming and you send a person into a grocery store with it in June. And we eat like that all year, but we also have the body signaled that it's a time of crisis, so we live 40, 50, 60 years with our body believing we're in a crisis, we're in survival mode, constantly, for 60 years. What does that do to all your other hormone levels? What does that do to your body? What does it do to your just your overall stress levels? Next. It also prevents the loss of bone mineral content. What is one of the biggest problems that the elderly have, especially women? Osteoporosis. So you start leaching your own bone minerals if you don't have sufficient vitamin D. It also presents, promotes something called scaffolding in the brain. Scaffolding is a way that neurons are supported. So if you don't have enough vitamin D, you don't have enough scaffolding to support your neurons. And the scaffolding is exactly what it sounds like. It's a framework that supports and holds up physically the structure of neurons in the brain, which become increasingly difficult to form as we get older. So if you look at another problem in the elderly that it's rapidly increasing, and it's, it correlates, it doesn't mean it's caused by, but it does correlate um, with declining vitamin D levels, it's Alzheimer's and dementia. It also promotes deep, restful sleep. If you wake up in the morning and you pretty much have slept through the night, but you're still tired and you're fatigued and you're looking for an energy drink by 10.30 in addition to your coffee, you I bet you, nine times out of ten, that person, if they go get their vitamin D levels tested, will test clinically deficient in vitamin D under the, 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 the woeful standards that we're using. In other words, we should be saying that the numbers are higher but even under the substandard number we're using, you'll probably be deficient because you're not in deep restful sleep. If you wake up a lot during the night, you're probably deficient in vitamin D. I'm not saying you are. I'm saying it is more likely than not that you probably are. If you get up in the night more than once to take a piss, you're probably deficient in vitamin D. You know, if you get up three or four nights at night, at night to pee, a lot of people that do this will find that, like, I feel like I gotta pee, I get up, I gotta pee, I don't go pee, but they don't pee that much. Right? And that's because, like, it really isn't enough to have to, but you are so not asleep well that it's enough to disturb you, and then your mind decides, well, this little urge that I have that I could urinate is why I'm not sleeping. Because people get up and pee way more during the night than they tend to during the day. Now, when you're on keto, I'll, I'll admit that you pee a lot more. I'll just say that. But, if you don't get deep, restful sleep, you're going to have issues with your health. 
So it's not just being asleep, it's being deeply asleep in full sleep mode. Now think of why you wouldn't be with vitamin D. I'll give you just one reason. What does an absence of vitamin D signal in a human being? Winter survival mode. If you're in survival mode, you cannot afford to be in deep, restful sleep because the body knows danger is higher. Really simple. It regulates serotonin. Serotonin is the feel-good, wake-up hormone of the daytime. If you're insufficient in serotonin, you're going to be insufficient in melatonin, which promotes the sleep. You see this all cycles together? It's also been shown to aid in recovery from alcoholism. Now, I, I don't want to start sounding like, you know, it slices, it dices, it does everything, it will fix cancer. I don't mean that. What I mean when I talk about what vitamin D does is I think it helps you be the best version of you that you can be. Whatever you were dealt on the genetic lottery and whatever you haven't destroyed in your body through behaviors up to this point, whatever potential you have, it helps you manifest it. So you can have problems that vitamin D won't fix, right? And you can have reasons you can't sleep well that vitamin D won't fix. But if you have a vitamin D deficiency, you probably also have a hard time making enough serotonin during the day. You're not going to make enough melatonin to counterbalance in the evening, and you're not going to sleep through the night which is going to make your rest worse, which is going to work your vitamin D levels worse, which is, it's a continuous cycle. Now, when I say it helps and aid in the recovery from alcoholism, that's, that's where I'm saying it. it doesn't fix everything, and only you can decide not to have that drink. I, I, I agree with that, but it is much easier for a person to recover from alcoholism or drug use, for instance, if they have their mind in the right place and if they're getting good restful sleep and if their body's balanced and they don't feel the need for something to compensate for it. It's also easier if they can get through the side effects of withdrawal, etc., both physical and mental, easier. So there's been some research shown that people do better in recovering from alcoholism, both from not being an alcoholic anymore, but also from the physical damage they've done by drinking too much, by using optimal D levels. And the truth is we don't know what we don't know. It's impossible for something this critical to human beings to be as unimportant as medicine and the sciences and doctors and the government have made it to be. We have taken something that is as critical to your body in some ways as insulin. And we have regulated to a minor thing that we give a little bit of stuff in our milk for to make sure kids don't have rickets. I mean, literally, that's what we've done. I, I mean, I know some of you are like, come on, that's an over... No, it's not. No, it's not. Vitamin D3, which again is really, they should call it hormone D3, or just D3, is important to your body, not for the same functions, but in the same way that insulin or glycogen is. Or your thyroid hormones are. It's, it is critical. It wouldn't be there if it wasn't critical to your existence. Inside your gut alone, the, you, you are more bacteria than person. Your body has more bacteria in it than it has human cells. Genetically, you're more bacteria than you are human cells. Because the genetics of all those bacterium are in your body. There are trillions of bacterium in your body. And you share a symbiosis with their genetics. And to regulate that gut biome, you need sufficient D3. That alone is, we don't understand. We don't know the full role of that biome of flora in the gut. 
We do know without it that chronic disease becomes rampant to the point where we can even stop some chronic diseases by a fecal transplant, literally taking somebody else's shit and sticking it up your ass. That's, that's not really how they do it, but to be blunt, that's basically what it is, and that fixes problems. How does that work? Because the bacteria from a healthy gut recolonize an empty gut and displace the things that don't belong there. We don't even understand that. Then we have a hormone that we ignore that regulates that and we relegate it to a minor vitamin. And we do almost no research into it. All the research that I've talked about being done, it's all being done through epidemiology. right? It's being done by collecting data of how people are already. It's not being done by taking somebody deficient and supplementing them to the point where you correct the imbalance. We're not doing that. This is insane. It would cost about $2 a person to do to see if it works for COVID. But we decided it's dangerous misinformation when we don't even know what we don't know. And that's the advice from government. And that's the advice from most doctors. That's the advice from the medical establishment. That's the advice from science and industry. And as I said, almost everything these people say should be considered wrong until proven otherwise. It's not wrong because they said it. It's probably wrong in that they said it. And until you can corroborate what they say with independent fact, you should not listen to it. Here's my final thoughts. Number one, I don't claim to know everything here. Nor do I claim this is any sort of magic. I'm not saying if you do keto and take vitamin D, you're going to be great for the rest of your life. I don't know. I do know... I do believe, I'll put it that way, I don't know, I do believe that if you take any group of people and you put them on a good, clean, ketogenic diet, and we haven't talked a lot about keto recently, and I'm just going to say clean means you're eating animals that are mostly pastured animals, um, grass-fed beef, things like that. You're not eating you know, processed mozzarella pizza balls just because their macros are right. So good, clean keto where you're eating good quality meat, good quality fats, Lots of vegetables that are low in calories, so they're high-nutrient, high-fiber vegetables, greens, and things like that. That if you had people eating that way, and you're making sure, regardless of how you do it, so if it's just testing serum levels and supplementing only the people that need it, and you keep vitamin D levels where they belong, which is at least 80 units in the blood, at least closer to 100 to 120, that that group of people will do better in almost every way you can measure them from a health standpoint than the average American. I, I believe that. And I can't prove it because no, why won't we do that research? And, and you need to understand when people say, well, then why don't we just have some people do that research? It's incredibly expensive for research to be valid in the eyes of the people that give you the information that you're supposed to follow. And that is by design is a form of gilding. I said the American Medical Association is a union. Unions are guilds. They're designed to limit participation and keep other opinions out. They are designed to maintain de facto monopolies. That's what unions are. Okay? I can only tell you what my results have been. I can only show you what my results have been. You can look at me a year ago and you can look at me today and you can draw your own conclusions. The track record of government and the medical community is one of mistakes, lies, and cover-ups. Not only did they not only were they wrong, that once they figured out they were wrong, they hid the fact that they were wrong until they couldn't anymore. And then they either admitted it or they came out and said, eh, well, we changed our mind. But you always, if you dig deep enough, you find there was this time in the middle when they knew they were lying and they kept doing it. 
You, all you have to do is look at something like smoking. There used to be ads on TV. This is far enough back that it's, I never even saw them in real time. But it wasn't that long before I was born there were ads on TV where there'd be a doctor in his white coat with a cigarette between his fingers going, I always recommend that my customers smoke camel cigarettes, the most natural cigarette that there is. And we know that the industry itself, the medical industry, And the government all figured out that was a bad thing, that cigarettes, gee, they're not good for you. <laughs> that it, They all hit it, and they all came out telling the truth at different periods of time. Eventually, yes, the government ratted out the industry, and even with big decisions against big tobacco made them pay a bunch of money. They sure made the, sure, though, that tobacco never really was financially hurt by this. It was just a cost of doing business, and they did cover it up for a time. And they only came out and did it when they were forced to because enough people finally said bullshit. And you can just go through history and you can find so many things outside of health and nutrition, honestly, but inside health and nutrition that can, you know, it's not even subject to debate. They were wrong. Then they lied about it. Then they changed. They were wrong. Then they lied to hide the, 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 the being wrong. And then they changed. So why, my question is how many times do you need a source to lie to you? Before you stop trusting it. If you are married to me, right? So if you're a woman, let's say you're married to me. If you're, if you're, not a, if you're a, a man, you were married to a woman that I would stand in for, okay? If you'd be an ugly woman, man. I'm, I'm an all right looking dude. I'd make an ugly woman. You get my point. You're married to somebody. And, you know, not a white lie. They tell you a lie that really matters. You might... Because you love them and you want it to work out and you made vows to them, you might forgive a lie. But how many times would you let a spouse lie to you like, no, I've never cheated on you, and find out, yes, they cheated on you. Oh, I only cheated on you once. Uh, no, they cheated on you way more than once. Oh, it was only with one. What I meant was it's only it was only with one person, and you find out it was like with ten. Like, how many times would you... Let that go on before you'd like, I don't want to be married anymore, let alone trust a word that comes out of your mouth. Now, if it was a friend who lied to you like, no, dude, I never slept with your girlfriend, you find out he didn't just sleep with your girlfriend, he slept with your last girlfriend, too. In fact, his whole strategy towards sleeping with women is to wait till you find one so he can hone in on it. Are you going to stay friends with him? Are you going to trust him two years from now when he calls you and tells you something he says is really important and he needs your help with it? Are you going to trust him then? Like, you wouldn't let anybody in your life lie to you as many times as government and the food industry and the medical industry have flat out lied to you. Nor would you trust somebody who's been wrong as many times as they are. But you're going to trust them? I just ask you why. And again, I'm not saying that everything they tell you is wrong. I'm just saying you should assume that it might be. And that you should never base your decision on their opinion. And then that's something else you really need to understand. The government does not speak in facts. It speaks in opinions like any other source. And it is just a subject, and I, I dare say with what we've examined today, more subject to being wrong than many other sources. So you can do what you want with that information. But I really hope that if you've been thinking about getting your health together, please consider keto. I have a whole YouTube series, like 41 episodes of 20 to 30 minutes a piece, going through everything that I do, how to do it, what to do, 
why to do it, why it works. I cover why you can't lose weight and drink alcohol. You can't. Now, I'm not saying like if you have a beer or two every Friday, you, you can't lose weight. I'm saying if you drink regularly, you can't lose weight because your body has to either process alcohol or burn fat. It can't do both at the same time. It can't deal with sugar. It can't moderate insulin levels and deal with alcohol. It can't do it. Biochemically, I explain why. It's, it's not possible. It's not an opinion. Bio, 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 biologically, the human body can't do those two things at the same time. So you have to have al absence of alcohol sufficient for the other things to happen. I explain why when people say calories don't matter at all, it's not true. I explain it with biology, chemistry, and mathematics. I explain it all. It's all free. I probably could sell what I've put together. I don't. It's free to you, to everybody else. With the with the supplements, I I can, this is a little bit of a commercial, but because it's only because it's helped me so much, Dr. Stephen Lewis of Green Wisdom Health. I can't tell you what you should be taking and what you shouldn't be taking because I don't know where you are on blood levels. I have no idea. And I can tell you this. If your blood levels on something are really good, he's not going to tell you to take more of it. So I, I, if not him, somebody that actually looks at this stuff, and so few doctors are willing to. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave that where it is. And please, if you haven't seen the results that we've had, just go by the website today, the survivalpodcast.com. Look up episode 2697 and just look at the pictures of us on the beach. And I think you can look at my face and my wife's arms alone and go, okay, I see that. I understand now. I, I really do. I, I think that if you look at uh, the photographs of me, I don't just look thinner. I don't just look younger. I look like a different person. I really do. I look like a different human being. And in some ways, if you think about it, I am. And this is why I've keyed in on D3 now that I've learned more about it. It all makes sense to me the minute that you understand that it's a hormone. Because I believe that the shift you see in human beings who go ketogenic is not just about the food. It's about a hormonal balance. And Ken Berry explained it to me a long time ago. You take a young girl, 16 years old, and a young boy, 16 years old, They're the same age and the same height, and you 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 know hide their hair and you make them a silhouette and you show them from behind as nothing but an outline. And 99 times out of 100, you can go girl boy. And if that's they're, they're eating the same food, they weigh about the same amount, right? The girl boy by shape of the body alone. But if you give that girl hormone, uh, the hormone testosterone, and you give that boy the hormone estrogen from the time they're eight till they're sixteen, you'll pick them backwards every time. What told that girl's body to put that extra fat on her hips, and told that boy's body to put the extra muscle on his shoulders? Hormones, hormones. And no matter how many if anybody wants to get offended by that, because apparently people are offended by scientific fact today, it's the truth. And when you balance the hormones, a man looks the way a man is supposed to look. And a man is supposed to look muscular. We're supposed to be muscular. No, we're not all supposed to be all Schwarzenegger. That's not what I'm talking about. Just go look at the, just go look at the pictures. That's all I got to say. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. If you enjoyed today's show and you want to support the work that we do, one of the ways to do that is join the Member Support Brigade. You can just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that. Or... Another way you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You'll see all the items I've reviewed. 
on Amazon over the year, and along with you'll be able to check out the items of the day. Item of the day today I'm bringing back, it's the Oregon electric chainsaws. I have one review for the plug-in and the battery. I'm keying in again today on the plug-in chainsaw. Oregon has that plug-in self-sharpening 18-inch electric chainsaw on sale for $80. This is a great electric chainsaw in of itself, but with the chain and sharpening system it has, as the blade gets dull, as the chain gets dull, you pull a lever, you run the saw for a couple seconds, and the blade is razor sharp. It's cool as shit, and it works great, and it's not something if you're going to be felling trees every day you should use. This is a small limbing, you know, bucking trees up to a certain size. Dropping, I've dropped a lot of trees with these on my property. Those of you that have like small backyards, small acreage, I would own one of these at at eighty bucks. If you don't have a chainsaw, get one. I'll just leave it at that. But you can always help us out by shopping at tspaz.com. Brings us to our song of the day. We are starting a Major Tom week, as in David Bowie's Major Tom character. We'll be going through uh, a variety of songs that are based on or, or anchored to the character Major Tom. So, of course, we're going to start off with Space Oddity by David Bowie. And uh, this is the one that starts out, Ground Control and Major Tom. Like, everybody knows this song, really. And when it came out, it was really around the time of the moon landing. So everybody thought it was about the moon. Uh, no. This was really more based on anything else, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, and Bowie said that when he went to that and saw it, he was just drugged out of his head, you know, and it just stuck with him, and he ended up writing this song, and his producer and, and everybody thought that it was about the space program and all, and, like, most of them didn't even understand that the guy ended up stranded in outer space. <laughs> so uh, I think it's interesting that people can look at something, and not understand it because they make a, a conclusion based on what they know instead of what is. And that goes back anchored into my quote of the day today from Huxley, right? Which is, experience is not what happens to a man. It's what a man does with what happens to him. And with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Ground control to Major Tom Ground control to Major Tom Take your protein pills and put your helmet on Ground control to Major Tom Commencing countdown engines on. Two. Check ignition and may God's love be with you. Major Tom
stars look very different today. 